Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Confidence is our big theme today, and it's a topic I get asked about almost every day and one I speak on sometimes. When we're going to get to confidence today, but we're going to have to do some other things first so you understand how this impacts your confidence. I think you'll find it's quite fascinating. So we're going to take a look first at our strengths. Those are the things that boost our confidence. And then we're going to talk about how those strengths can sometimes suddenly become flaws And how do we deal with this language called flaws in the first place? You're going to find that there's a blended process that attaches a flaw with a value. Hmm. Sounds interesting. And that's how we boost our confidence. Okay. Stay tuned. My guest is going to explain it much better than I just did. So my guest is Kelly Thompson. She's a women's leadership coach and speaker who helps women advance to the rooms where decisions are made. She's coached and trained hundreds of women to trust themselves, lead with more confidence, and create a career they love. She's the founder of the Clarity and Confidence Women's Leadership Program. Don't we all need that? And she's a Stevie Award winner for Women in Business Coach of the Year. And she's the author of Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Peace, Your Potential, and Your Paycheck. Kelly, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Wanda. I'm happy to be here. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. This is a fascinating, the whole piece of this fitting together is a really fascinating story, but I got to start with you and in a slightly different way than I typically start with the show, which is early in your career, you were leading sales and you were very direct, which you said worked so well for you as a sales manager or salesperson. And then suddenly it didn't. What, tell us what happened. Oh, absolutely. So early in my career, I had everybody's dream job. And this dream job was I had to call about 80 people per day and try to sell them credit card processing. I know that that's probably on the top of the list of a lot of people's dream jobs, but you know, it was one of my first roles out of college and it was, it was direct phone sales. And, you know, I actually did pretty well at it. And I think one of the reasons why I did pretty well at it was because, you know, I was, I was direct. I had a direct personality my whole life. I've been told, you know, Hey, you're pretty direct. Hey, you're pretty direct. You're kind of blunt. Well, I'd found this role in sales, especially phone sales, selling credit card processing, right? Which is not something we, we often think about, but it worked really well for me because I would make these calls. I would tell them what I was calling. I would ask them for the sale and they would say yes or no. And then we'd hang up and we'd move on, right? And so it just was kind of the way I did things. And I was really successful. I won a lot of top salesperson awards. And then I started to get promoted. I decided I really wanted to be in training and in human resources. And so I was lucky enough to get promoted out of sales to a sales trainer and then to um, a human resources professional development role. And this is where being direct started to be a little bit of a liability to me. I always knew I was direct, but I really didn't understand how much of a liability that could be. So in one particular instance, I remember sitting down with the individual whose organization I was supporting. He was the chief operating officer of the organization I worked for at the time. 
And we sat down and we had a conversation about people and talent and development and all the things that you talk about when you talk about HR. And he got up and he started to walk out of the room and he turned around and he looked at me and he said, you know, you're really direct. And a lot of people aren't really going to know how to handle that. And he just left. And that just was kind of his personality. He kind of was just a spark plug where he would just kind of say things and leave. And I think maybe, you know, he was really direct, but, you know, he just kind of got away with it, I think, at the time. But for the first time, I really sat back. And that was kind of when I heard, oh, oh my, well, what's it, what do I do with that? What does that even mean that I'm direct and people may not be able to handle it? And I think one of the things that I started to get a little bit more cognizant over time, and as I started to participate in a lot of leadership development events, I started to get that feedback. Hey, you are really direct. You could really soften your approach. You could really not be so blunt when you have things to say. You might want to start thinking about um, you know, how you say things. And as that started to be more feedback that I would get as I moved into more of a leadership type role, I started to realize, I was like, oh, this could be a liability to my career. This could keep me from, you know, getting the next promotion that I wanted or being the most effective leader I could be. And so it was at that point early in my career where I started to realize, you know, being direct is an asset, but it could also be a liability as well. I can't tell you how many people I coach who have the problem of being too direct and then don't understand why is that a problem and they get coaching and they realize that they need to dial it back. And then that doesn't work very well over time. They drift right back up again. And then there's this constant cycle of not understanding what's the problem with being too direct. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, classic problem. And an awful lot of women then get tagged with the too aggressive message, which I think frequently is just the too direct message. Mm -hmm. okay. Now, those yeah. of us who are direct like you sit back and say, what's the problem with being too direct? So you got to tell us, Kelly, what's the problem really, other than you got feedback that said you weren't going to get the next promotion. Yeah. Direct tip into wrong or a problem. So yeah, no, that is such a good question. I think where directness, being overly direct, really started to hurt me as a leader was not understanding how my words impacted other people and how maybe I could handle direct feedback or being directly told what I needed to do or didn't need to do. Um, I had no problem kind of I'll use the phrase calling the baby ugly. Like if something wasn't working or something didn't make sense, I could be very direct in just saying that in a meeting and being like, well, that doesn't make sense. I don't know why we're doing it that way. That doesn't work. And what I didn't understand was that my tone and my directness um, could really put people on the defense. Instead of beginning conversations, it could shut conversations down. And sometimes if I wasn't careful, you know, other people just, weren't, um, they're just a little more sensitive than I was. It could really hurt people's feelings. And so when I was really thinking about building relationships and, you know, my directness, oftentimes then I was told, well, people find you intimidating. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so what I recognized was, is it really wasn't helping me build, um, the relationships that I wanted, not only with my own team members, but with people that I need to collaborate with across the organization, because there just was this sense of like hardness and intimidation that came across instead of, slowing down, pausing, collaborating, recognizing how what I said might be heard by other people. And so mm -hmm. ultimately it became an impact in the relationships 
that I created and it impacted how people perceive me in meetings. And instead of starting conversations, lots of times that directness would shut conversations down, which obviously is not where you want to go. Yeah. I think that um, the moment that directness starts to get people on the defense, then there's no good that comes out of that conversation. It's 100% protecting territory and it's not very good. Okay. So just out of general curiosity to fill out the, so this one guy tells you, and then other people tell you the feedback. Did anybody ever have you go through like a 360 assessment or work with a coach or did you ever do that sort of stuff as well? Yeah. So we did have a 360 assessment process at work. And I, I was, that did come up in the 360, but honestly, where the feedback mostly came from was as I was part of like leadership development experiences in my organization, there was one I could particularly think of where you go through this three-day strategic leadership training. You learn about the Myers-Briggs, which if you are familiar with the Myers-Briggs, I'm an INTJ, which may not surprise you that directness is correlated with being an introvert and a thinker and somebody who likes timelines. And at the end of this experience, we were all supposed to give feedback to each other in front of a group, which I would not recommend. This was several years ago, but it showed up there. Kelly, Mm -hmm. you're really direct. You know, of course, all the men were told to be more direct, but I was told to be less direct. And then, of course, the other place that it always showed up was in my performance reviews. Mm -hmm. It showed up in coaching with my leader. But I would say primarily the, the big awareness for me came was because I had a leader who was courageous enough to give me that feedback, to pull me aside after the meeting and say, hey, when you said this in the meeting, how do you think that landed? Like she didn't tell me, she just kind of, you know, prompted the question, like, how do you think that landed? Did you notice what changed in the dynamics of the room after you came in and dropped the direct bomb? And I was like, oh, you know, so I mean, thank goodness I had a leader like that who was willing to have those conversations with me and give me examples and ask me if I, what I thought of the impact of my words. Um, But yeah, it showed up in performance reviews as well. So, and then, you know, through that, I think in my leadership, I also then kind of owned that I was direct. And so I would tell my teams, Hey, this is a thing. This is my greatest strength. Um, Because again, leading HR eventually over the years, being direct was a strength because I had to have hard conversations with people about, their employment status, benefits, changes, company mergers. I had to sometimes give really hard news to my CEO, who was the boss. So it was a strength. But I also had to let folks know, hey, sometimes I can be a little overly direct. So I might check in with you and say, you know, how's my approach? Could I have softened my approach? You know, just letting folks know. And so that was another good source of feedback as well. That's really good. I love, I've been doing a whole bunch of how do you feedback upwards and downwards, sideways, all sorts of things. And I love the example from your leader. I just can't resist saying this is that she didn't tell you what to do. My biggest issue with feedback is we try to tell people what to do. And then people fight with the message of what to do. Instead, you say, Hey, did you notice the impact or the impact on me was, or some version mm-hmm. of that? Okay. I love that. Fabulous. Yes. Yes. Okay. So now let's shift to how, what you learned to do with this one. So you've turned this into a whole science of how do you take these things that have positives, their strengths for sure but overused or used in the wrong place or used in the wrong set of circumstances suddenly become a liability. How do you start Mm -hmm. thinking about assets versus liabilities? 
It's such a good question. And, you know, we're using the example of directness, but I really want to broaden this because you're right. There are some gender norms and expectations in terms of, you know, women are often called too direct, too assertive, too bossy, too aggressive. <clears throat> However, I have a many clients who say, Kelly, I'm just so sensitive and I hate this about myself. And that is a very gender feminine quality. And yet it's something that they still believe is a strength, you know, being sensitive allows them to be empathetic and anticipate people's needs. But, you know, sometimes they deeply feel it as a flaw. They're like, I just get emotional in situations or I I take and read into things that maybe I shouldn't. And so, again, I don't want to categorize that sometimes these flaws are only these things that maybe women are told. And maybe sometimes, too, when we look on the other end of the spectrum, men can really be um, criticized for being too sensitive or too emotional, or too soft, okay? So I just want to just group that, that sometimes this strength really can be a flaw, and it can be on both sides of the coin. And so what I've learned to do in my own experience, and what I teach my clients to do, is I say this, I say, you know what, you will never not be that thing. So let's just stop trying. You know, I'm a direct person, a little more of an assertive person, I'm a D on the disc, you are never going to make me into a sensitive person. So let's just stop trying. And I'm not saying that we can't cultivate some of those qualities, but what I'm saying is you're always going to have like this engine driving your car. So how do we balance this in alignment with your values so that you can take a little more softened approach? And so let me just give you an example of what that looks like. So in the course of my career and in my own personal development work, I learned what my, my top five core values were, and they are love, respect, family, creativity, and learning. And so while I was never not going to be a direct person, one of the things I had to learn, especially when I was overseeing HR, is how can I use both and here? Mm -hmm. How can I be both direct when I'm telling this person that their career with us is ending and loving? Because love is a value of mine. You know, how can I share some really hard information with people in a direct way so that we're clear and everybody understood and there's no guessing? and be respectful. So what I would encourage you to do and why I even encourage my clients to do is especially even though the ones on the other end of the spectrum who say, I'm just so sensitive and I don't like this about myself. I tear up or I read into things, whatever. Okay. Well, you know, what are your values? You know, what do you value in a leader? What do you value at work? And, you know, this individual might say, well, I value harmony. I value transparency. I value honesty. It's like, okay, great. Well, how can you be sensitive and honest? How can you be sensitive and transparent? And so what I really encourage my clients to do is, yes, own that strength that sometimes can be a flaw about you and blend it in alignment with your values. Be direct and loving, you know, be assertive and respectful, be sensitive and transparent or sensitive and honest or sensitive and balanced, whatever that looks like for you. Okay. So Kelly, I love this idea that we're going to be direct and respectful or direct and creative even for that matter. I mean, I'm assuming you pick which of the core values for the circumstances. How does that work for you to get you to get the right tone on your directness? Mm, It encourages me to be thoughtful. And I think that's the thing that I've really had to learn is instead of just kind of using my approach without stopping and thinking about how my words might land on someone. It's really encouraged me. And and this is not something that just happens, right? I really had to be intentional about when I'm delivering news, when I'm going to sit down and have a conversation with someone, I think about who is this person? What are they thinking? 
what are they feeling? What could they be saying to other people? You know, um, what could they be doing? What's, what's going on? And so, yes, I will be direct because that's who I am. But I really try to think of, like you said, that situational awareness, you know, what value of mine can I bring in to help balance this conversation so I can make that person feel the way they want to feel. And I think that's also a values conversation is like, what do I value in this conversation? How do I want to make this person feel? I think sometimes, at least I know in my own experience and with my clients' experiences, they come to coaching because they're all wrapped up around having a hard conversation and how they're going to say it and what they're going to say and how the person's going to react. And we get into that whole ruminating place and I just stop them and I say, I want you to give me three words that describe how you want this person to feel mm. at the end of this conversation. And just that gives us enough pause to get out of our ego, out of our ruminating, out of our frenetic you know, response and really thinking about, oh, even though it's hard news, I want them to feel heard. You know, I want them to feel validated. And it might be, I just, I want them to feel clear on what they need to do, you know? So it really just stops and helps us put, like uses empathy and puts them in, us in their shoes and say, yeah, there's another person in this conversation or people in this conversation that I think of just besides myself. So I like this concept, Kelly, is that we're going to take this quality, directness or whatever else, we'll come to the other kinds in a moment and say, I'm going to intentionally, consciously, thoughtfully balance that with some other values that I care about. So I'm not abandoning my directness, but I'm nuancing it, if you will, with a value, like a value of respect or a value of love or of creativity, so that I'm thoughtful about it. So that's part one. But part two is also saying, how do you want people to feel coming out of this conversation so that you're aware of, I want them to feel respected or mm-hmm. whatever else it is we say we want them to feel in the conversation. So, and it's that frame that allows you to continue to be direct without being overbearing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Well said. You said it first, not me. (laughs) I'm just in the job of summarizing. Okay. We've been talking about it in terms of directness and you mentioned sensitive, but what other sort of um, characteristics do you see in people that frequently need this sort of balancing act? Well, I think that what I would ask women and this, and I actually, I would ask anyone, and I've done this in group coaching calls with men and women before, is I want you to go back to when you were a young age could be a little person, could be high school, could be college. It could even just be in your first job, right? When we're still tender and impressionable. What have you always been told you're too much of? Mm. You know, there are so many answers. I'm too chatty. You know, yeah, I'm the too direct. I'm too sensitive. I'm too emotional. I'm too carefree. Um, I'm too flighty. I mean, there's just people carry that around like a wound. Because somebody told them once they were too much of something and we don't know what that something is. And so then I often ask them, well, what has that something, right? That quality that sometimes you feel so much shame around, what does it allow you to do? And they can, you know, if I'm doing this in a group session, the chat will just light up because they can all give me examples. Well, because I am this thing, I can do this and that and the other thing and the, you know, and so I'm like, well, gosh, are there certain situations at work where that is exactly what is needed? And so it's not about making a list of um, th- these are these certain qualities that need to be fixed. I really encourage folks to go in and ask yourself, what is that quality that I felt a sense of shame around because somebody 
one day told me I was too much of it. Mm-hmm. That's probably a really big clue that it's probably a gift of yours and it, it has gotten you things in your life and it's served you. And that could be a good starting point to say, okay, great. How do we use that in the right situations to accomplish what you need to get accomplished while also then blending that in alignment with a values-based approach? Right. One of the ones I hear all the time where there's a little bit of shame around is I'm too quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Too quiet. And yes. you know, bless Susan Kane, she's done a wonderful job of helping us remember the values in quiet mm-hmm. people. But I like this that you say, what is it that you've been told that you were too much of and that you felt a little shame around? And you know this when people come and talk to you because they sort of embarrassed, kind of like hinging a little, well, I'm too, you know, whatever it is. But then recognizing where does that help you? Where is that allowing Mm -hmm. you to do something so that we can start to say what situations work and what situations aren't working? Okay. I think we could give a long laundry list, Kelly. Too sensitive, too emotional, too direct, too assertive, too quiet, too talkative, Mm -hmm. too optimistic, too pessimistic, too cynical. I'm sure I've not even touched anywhere close to the ones that I hear on a routine basis. Oh, absolutely. And for everybody, it's unique. Yeah. Yeah. It's unique for everyone. For sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And I think that whatever that is that somebody said you were too much of and it creates that sense of shame, it probably tells you that it's a core thing of yours. Cause I think that, you know, this part of me, I kind of like it, but I'm not supposed to like it. Yeah. And I guess, that's and I good. always ask, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. I always ask my clients too, like how much energy does that cost you to hide that constantly? And they look at me and you can see their shoulders just drop and they're like, Kelly, I fight it all day. I sit in meetings and, you know, I, I think I need to do or say this thing, but then that voice comes back into my head. They're like, you know, don't be too chatty, you know, or it could be like you said, the opposite of that. It could be the voice in your head that says, Oh, I'm just too quiet. I'm just too quiet. And just the amount of emotional energy that I know me and my clients have said that they've expended at work is so draining. And I just really think that that's what's important for us to know is just imagine what would be different for you and how you would feel at the work event every day. You know, how would you feel in your interactions if you weren't constantly ruminating and expending all of that energy, wishing you were somebody else or wishing that wasn't a thing about you? Like, let's use that and, and blend the approach instead of beating yourself up because that's exhausting. All right. So it's not trying to change it as much as it is to adjust it. Yeah. So as you said, I'm not going to get rid of the fact that I'm direct. I've always been direct. I'm always going to be direct. I rather like being direct. I prefer directness or whatever else the quality is there. I'm going to accept Mm -hmm. that in myself. I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of energy trying not to be that thing or worrying about whether I've been that thing again and accept it. And then I'm going to find a way of how to put it in the right context, in the right situation with the right balancing act. Yes. Yes. 100%. All right. Okay. So that brings us to the values language. So one of the secrets of this one is, and your way of thinking about it, is blending the thing that I think I'm too much about, or I'm worried about being too much of, with some set of core values. So I keep the um, quality in the right context. But that means I have to have a really good exercise on how do I get to my values. 
Mm -hmm. Right. So I've always gone given clients list of values words. It's called a values exercise. You can Google it. There are dozens of them out there. Um, but you don't like that methodology. So can you talk to us about how do we get to the core values that really matter? Yeah, absolutely. So the core values exercises that I give my clients is, um, you're right, you can Google anything and you can come up with a list of values words. I actually just had this conversation with someone today. What folks can tend to do is they can tend to go through this exercise that you find on the internet and it'll give you a list of words and they can circle a lot of shoulds. You know, uh, I think I need to value strategy because that's all they talk about in my company. And why we might not consciously think that when we're circling those words, like there's this little part of us that's like, I should want that. I should be that. Uh, my mom said that this is a good thing. My dad demanded this of me or whatever that, like my family of origin says that, you know, our family is this type of things. And so sometimes I think when folks do a first pass on circling their values words, I then encourage them to go back and say, okay, I want you to take out all the shoulds. And they're just like, (sighs) (laughs) there's like this pause. And so then, you know, I actually have them ask some deeper questions and I'm happy to unpack these, these five questions if you'd like me to. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the first question that I really want them to ask is what do you want your life or your work to stand for? Not what somebody else told you, not what, you know, our family of origin told us, not what your company thinks it should stand for. What do you want your life or your work to stand for? When you are not in the room, when you think about your legacy, what do you want them to say? Oh, Wanda, you know, she really stood for a B and C. And people knew that because of the way that you acted, the way that you responded, the way that you treated people. Okay. Um, And just, you know, sometimes this is better just to do it free form without the words first and just start to list some adjectives. Okay. I actually like to use the list of words last. Um, The second question is to notice what makes you feel resentful or angry. So I just had a conversation with someone this morning. And one of the things we were actually talking about her values. And, uh, we were talking about what had upset her in the last couple of weeks at work. And she was talking about, um, just some changes that people were making to her projects and to her assignments and some requests and requirements that were coming in. And so as the conversation evolved, she just talked about how, when that happens to her, she gets so resentful and so upset and she just simmers and she boils. And what it went down to is like, we recognize that when people come in with all these impacts to her projects and take things away and put things in, it violated her value of independence. And so a really huge clue for you as to what you value could be what absolutely drives you bonkers. I'll give you another example. How I came up with my value of creativity was that I was working in a financial services company and financial services organizations are very regulated. That's just the way they are. We're not going to get around it. And so I would have ideas and I'd want to launch programs, but it would have to go through like six layers of approval. And because, you know, that's just the way financial services companies work. And what I realized, because my blood would just boil and it just almost was a source of burnout for me. And I was like, oh, I value creativity. There's nothing wrong with the way this company does their business, but I value creativity, the ability to have an idea and act on it right away. And they just don't work that way. And so that's another good question is like, what just grates your gears? What's missing from your job or your relationships? It could be a clue 
that um, a boundary is being crossed and that the opposite of that is a value for you? So that, that's another good question. And the third question I encourage folks to ask is, you know, what qualities do you admire in your favorite people and want to cultivate? So this is not about copying people, but really sit back and think about who are people that you just have admired over time. They could be a family member. They could be somebody in your workplace or a famous person that you know. Really think, like, what are those two to three qualities that you really admire about them? Because, again, it's just clues into things that you possibly value. So you can take that list of words. The fourth question is, what must be present in your life or work to make it feel meaningful? That's really where I got the love and respect value is I actually, I'd been divorced by age 30. I hopped it right into another relationship and, and got engaged soon after and actually called off that wedding about you know three months before. Until that time, I hadn't really sat down and thought much about my values. But when it really came down to it, I recognized, oh, the reason why these relationships never worked is because they were missing some fundamental things. I assumed the other people had these because I never thought about it. But when I actually said, okay, if I'm the common denominator and these things all going wrong, what was missing? Like, what, what are my non-negotiables? What do I have to have present in my life and in my work to make them meaningful? And that's where I really came up with love, respect in terms of the words that you use, timeliness, et cetera, and just like a mindset of learning, you know, continual improvement development. The last question is, is what are your non-negotiable actions, behaviors, and traits in your life and work? So I probably kind of answered that one a little bit, but a good question to ask is, what are your non-negotiables? When you enter into a new relationship, when you think about the friendships you have in your life, when you think about the jobs that, uh, and the careers you've been most happy in, what are your non-negotiables? Things, habits, traits, qualities that you have to have to even like punch the ticket into the game. So those are the five questions I'd like to have folks, folks ask. I love to have them do a little journaling, maybe circle some words like, oh, I keep saying this word and then go to the list and then circle some of these words in this list that resonate with you. And I always say your values should feel a freedom. They should make you go, ah, oh, you know, take that deep breath because if it's a should for you, you're probably going to tense up. You might hear your family of origins voice in the background going, you should be empathetic or your boss saying you should be strategic. So if it feels a little tense for you, probably not a value. If it feels peaceful and freeing and open, like liberating, it's probably a value for you. All right. I'm going to forever steal this because I think this is a brilliant <laughs> addition and I can Thank understand you. why this takes a while to yeah. work your way through it, to think about it, to write about it, to come back to it, and then sort of see what words are appearing over and over again and what they're really about. All right. So to repeat the questions, one is, what do you want your life and your work to stand for? Mm -hmm. And you encourage people to write that free form, not looking at a list of words, just straight out. Mm -hmm. And then what makes you angry or resentful? And that's, you're looking for a clue of what what value of yours is getting violated in yes. that thing that makes you angry. All right. So what's the antithesis of what made you angry that you value? Third question is what quality do you admire in some of your favorite people and want to emulate? So what is it about them that you admire so much? Number four is what has to be present in your life and work to give it meaning, to afford to be meaningful? And then five is what are your non-negotiables, actions, traits, qualities, behaviors, mindsets, any of those that are non-negotiable. Yeah. Five questions. 
write the five questions, think about the five questions, spend some days on those five questions, and then go to your values words and the words that keep reappearing in your journaling and see mm-hmm. what emerges. I can also imagine Absolutely. this is a case where a friend or a coach or some other thinking partner could be really useful to say, do you know that you keep saying respect all the time? Yes. I did that this morning. I go, have you noticed that you've used the word connection four times in this conversation? And it was like a light bulb turned on. She goes, well, yeah, you know, because it's sometimes these things, values are so unconscious to us that we don't even know that we're repeating that word over and over and over again, but it, it was so meaningful to her. Right. It strikes me, Kelly, that all of us should be doing a deeper dive into our values and thinking more seriously about what we want to stand for, what we represent, what we're trying to emulate, all of those questions. And in the sense of this is me, this is just really me. To do that first and then look at the feedback you've gotten, it's going to have you vary a different angle on the feedback. So yes, I may get, I'm too um, outspoken as Mm -hmm. the message that I get, but I can now balance that in my own head with what I'm carrying when I'm outspoken. And that helps me accept the feedback and recognize where I might not have been as caring as I needed to be or whatever other value it is that I want to put on that one. Um, So I can imagine it helps us put some of this difficult feedback in a context, Mm -hmm. but it also says, all right, so I'm going to be outspoken, but how do I make sure today I show up in a caring way or in a connecting way or in a respectful way? Yeah, absolutely. And for you use a really good example for some of my clients who are extroverted, outspoken. Uh, One of them in particular, this example is in my book about how she said, she said, you know, I am often told that I take on too many things. I dominate the conversation in meetings because I am outspoken. And so by really naming and claiming her values, she could just pause for that split second and say, am I speaking just to speak up because I struggle with silence in the room? A lot of extroverts struggle with that, that pause. And she goes, I could just take that pause and be like, okay, wait a minute. Am I speaking up to fill the silence or am I speaking up because this is something that's in alignment with my values, something that I care about, something that's deeply meaningful to my work. And she's like, and when I had that filter click, she goes, it is amazing how much my workload dropped. (laughs) She goes, (laughs) when you're the one talking in the room, they want to give you all the work here. You take it, you take it. And so she's like, it really helped balance and helped my contributions be more meaningful. She goes, now when I speak up, people listen, and it's not just me dominating the entire conversation. So I'm so glad you used that example. I love that. That's a great example. Okay. All right. You're going to inspire me to come and do a workshop with you on the values. All right, Kelly, this is a perfect place to take a break. Um, So talking about that thing that you've been told you're too much of, probably early in your career, probably multiple times in your career. It's probably something you feel slightly embarrassed by, or maybe even a little shame about whatever that is too much blank. And we want to hold on to that and admit that, yes, I am that, and that that thing works for me in places and I don't want to get rid of it. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. But I need to figure out where it works and where it doesn't. And I show up in an intentional way so that I'm still holding onto that quality, but consistent with my values. So loving, caring, connecting, respecting, whatever those is. And we've just gone through the five questions that are essential for understanding what your values are really about. Okay. So when we come back from the break, 
The big question is, tell us about confidence. And we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Kelly Thompson. And we have been talking about how you take those things that you're slightly embarrassed about called flaws, try to hide, no, you shouldn't do, recognize that they are assets in other ways and balance them with some values that are going to make them um, more appropriate in the right sets of situations. That was a long conversation, but we just covered that part. And what I want to do now is to focus on Kelly's new book, which is called Closing the Confidence Gap, Boost Your Peace, Your Potential, and Your Paycheck. I love the paycheck part, Kelly. It's brilliant. So tell us how does all of this concept about flaws, assets, liabilities, turning you know something I feel bad about into something I'm proud of, how does all of that tie into confidence? You know, I think this ties into confidence because claiming and naming your values is really the birthplace of confidence. At least it was in my own experience. So when I had my third life crisis at about age 30, you know, it really came because I had followed a lot of rules in my life. I grew up in a very small uh, town in the Midwest in the United States. I went to a Catholic school. Everybody looked like me. Everybody believed like me. We wore uniforms to school. And so we were just given some rules. I rules and quotation marks about how the world worked. And, you know, my family of origin just gave me kind of rules like, you know, hey, get married young and have kids young. So you have enough energy and go to college and make sure you get a job at a stable company that pays benefits. I mean, very well-intentioned rules. And I think as young people, we really internalize some of this advice and say, okay, yep. If I just check all the boxes, and I do all these things that society says I should do, then I will be happy and successful. And I think especially for women, we can really get caught up in some box checking, um, you know, to adapt and conform to a world that wasn't necessarily built for us. And so by the time I, I hit 30, you know, I was filing for divorce. Um, I was having a career crisis because I was like, do I even want this? I was working at a bank because I thought it was supposed to be stable and make me happy and have all these benefits. I had gotten my master's degree and I'm like, I checked all the boxes and why am I so miserable? You know, I just called off my wedding and that was really where I had the big values. Aha. Like I really struggled with confidence because I never stopped and asked myself, do I even want this? I was totally living in what they call that arrival fallacy of I'll be happy when I'll be happy when I get that next promotion. Oh, I'll be happy when this happens. And it, that this was about 2016. And we were talking about what we stand for. And this is right when Hamilton, the musical uh, launched in the United States. And so there was this meme going around the internet that said, and it's Alexander Hamilton. And he says to Aaron Burr, he says, if you don't know what you stand for, what will you fall for? And that was my like confidence light bulb. I said, it is no wonder why I am lacking so much self-confidence and I'm struggling so much at work and I lack so much clarity. I don't even know what I stand for. I know what rules I thought I was supposed to follow. And so that really became a bedrock, rock bottom. I don't know what moment, you know, you call that in your own language where I really had to ask myself, okay, I need to get clear on what I stand for. I really need to get clear on what I value. And once I started to get clear on what I stood for and what my values were, all of a sudden, my right yeses and my right noes were very clear. I stopped saying yes to things because other people wanted them or I thought they looked good. I could go back and say, you know, is this in alignment with my values? Is this, you know, giving me a vote for what I actually stand for and who I want to become in the world? 
And when I started to live my life that way, I had to give some really hard no's. I switched careers. You know, I had to change some friend groups. I had to do some things differently, but my confidence just had built a little more and a little more and a little more because for the first time, I was thinking about what I wanted, what I stood for and living in alignment with my values versus just conforming to who everyone else wanted me to be. Fascinating. Yes, that's a powerful line. If you don't know what you stand for, then you don't know what you fall for. Mm-hmm. And being clear on, well, I, I think the my watch word, it seems I keep using this word over and over and over again in the last couple of months is intentionality. Yeah. What's my intention? Am I intentionally thinking about the choice I'm making, the reasons I'm making the choice? And then I can be sure that it's right. It's that intentionality. And that's what you're saying with your values, knowing what it is I want to stand for, how it is, not how I want to live my life, but using those values as a basis for making a choice on the job that I do, on whether I take a promotion or not, or whether I take that headhunter call on whether I hang out with these friends, on whether I marry that person, yes, <laughs> <and> on we <laughs> go, <laughs> whether I write another book, um, all of those. Uh-huh. 100%. Right yeah. Now you have another phrase you say about confidence. I asked you a question when we were talking earlier and I said, what's the secret to driving confidence? And you said, confidence is a verb. Mm, yes. You know, I liken it. Right. I love to use the, the gym metaphor. Confidence is a verb because, you know, it's something that is produced by taking action. Kind of like, you know, when we go into the gym, if you've never been into a gym before, you're not going to go and pick up a 50 pound dumbbell and rip out some curls, like, you know, a big, you know, muscly person. You're going to go in and you're going to take action by starting with something small. You're going to start with a five pound dumbbell or, or less if you need to, right? And it's that repetition. It's the action that produces confidence. I think sometimes, and I'm guilty of this. I mean, I have not figured this out in my own life, but what I do know for sure is that if you wait until you feel confident to take the action, to speak up, to do the thing, like you will be waiting for the rest of your life. I think a lot of people think that they have to feel confident before they can do the thing. When in reality, doing the thing produces the confidence. And that's such a counterintuitive and way to, to do it. And so what I like to tell my clients and what I remind myself, and this always goes back to the whole values thing is like, oh, wait a minute, I can be confident. I can act confidently while also feeling a little nervous, mm-hmm. you know, like recording this podcast. Of course I feel a little nervous. Like, you know, it's a normal and healthy human emotion. But if I would wait until I felt perfectly you know, competent and confident and assured, right? We would never be talking about this right now. I would never get up and speak in front of people. I would never take a risk in my business. I never would have switched careers. So you can feel the difficult feeling, whatever it is, nervousness, doubt, insecurity, while also taking the actions of confidence. I like that one. All right. I'm going to, before I stick on that, you know, how do you take those actions even when you're feeling nervous? I want to go back to something you said earlier that, um, it's the act of repetition. It's the doing it again and the do it again that produces the confidence and that we don't want to wait until we feel fully confident before we take that risk. Otherwise we'd be waiting forever. I want to connect that to two things um, in my work and in my coaching. So one of the things that I noticed that too many people do in the course of their career is they play it safe with their career. Now, if you happen to like to be a functional expert and that's what you want to be for the rest of your life, like let's say you want to be an engineer, fine, do that. 
But if your aspiration is different, then you're going to have to take some risks and get outside that comfort zone, the title of this podcast, and exactly what we're about here in order to be able to take the next risk and the bigger risk. And if you've never taken a risk, well, I'm sorry, not on my watch if I'm the hiring manager, because I don't want to be the first one. So the risks are the career building if you aspire to um, larger positions in greater impact. All right. The interesting thing is I routinely ask very senior executives, men and women, about their career stories and about a big risk that they took and about why they took it and about how they've dealt with the confidence. Everybody has a crisis of confidence, everybody, and they do it anyway. And then once you've done it one time, it's not so scary to do the next bigger one and the next bigger one and the next bigger one. And that's how they go to these big jobs, not because they know everything or have sorted it all out. It's because they're willing to take risks. So I think that's really important. And then we can't wait. We can't keep waiting for forever. You just have to take the risk. So now how do I deal with that nervous energy? Cause that imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. you're going to find out I'm not very good. And you're going to find out my successes are not really because I'm all that clever. I just got lucky How do you advise people to deal with those feelings of anxiety and nervousness, fear, failure? Yeah, that's a really good example that you just gave because it demonstrates that like we need to practice taking risks when the stakes are low. They probably took risks when there was very low stakes opportunities, and then they they developed a little bandwidth for that next higher risk. So I just want to say that I think that's really important and something that we talked about, and I'll give my, my four tips was that here's a universal truth that I figured out. And that is um, today's, like yesterday's goals or a source of today's imposter syndrome. Like, I don't know if this just seems to be universally true for me and for a lot of people that I work with. For example, let's just say I book a keynote speaking at a women's leadership conference, you know, in, in October, this happened to me last year. I am so excited today. Just can't wait. This is exciting. This was on my vision board, right? Because it's still far off. And then as the day approaches, all the doubt and the imposter syndrome comes rushing in, the nerves, the restlessness, the sleeplessness, the anxiety, the procrastination. And I haven't met somebody who who has said, oh my gosh, yes, I wanted to get a new job so bad. It was a huge goal of mine. And then I got it. And in the two days before I started, I thought for sure, I'm going to show up to this place and I'm going to be found out. And they're going to, so just normalize normalize that lots of times when we're stretching our comfort zone, the goals we set today are probably going to give you a little doubt and imposter syndrome when it starts to get really close. So what I always tell folks is to do four things. I want you to notice it. I want you to name it. I want you to normalize it. And I want you to reframe it. So the first one is I just want you just to notice it without judging it. Because I think sometimes what happens is we feel that very, very normal feeling of doubt or nervousness or imposter syndrome. And then we start to criticize ourselves. Mm -hmm. Oh, stop it. Oh, you shouldn't feel this way, et cetera, et cetera. And I have yet to meet somebody who can criticize themselves into more confidence. So just notice it (laughs) with a ton of compassion. Like I just, I notice my body is restless. I notice that my brain is telling me, Kelly, this is, this smells like failure. (laughs) I just notice it, ton of compassion. And then I just want you to name it. And sometimes it can be really hard for us to slow down and name the things that are actually happening to us. I am not somebody who is very naturally in tune with my emotions. So what I have to do is I literally have to put my hand over my heart, 
sometimes I have to Google a list of emotional feeling words or the, or an emotional feeling wheel. You can find these all over the internet and literally name my emotions and look from a list and go, Oh yeah, I I am. I'm feeling insecure. I'm feeling nervous. I'm feeling doubt because I like to say that imposter syndrome sometimes is an umbrella emotion. It's made up of lots of little emotions underneath, like excitement, insecurity, worry, nervousness, doubt, right? And when you can name those emotions, it doesn't give them power. Like that level of clarity actually builds resilience. And, and sometimes it takes their power away. Because like I tell myself and my clients, emotions are just data. Mm-hmm. And they're probably giving me some really interesting insight on what I truly care about. And then I can say, oh, you know what? I'm feeling doubtful and uh, a little nervous because I care. I care about doing good work. I care about the message that these folks hear. It means I'm human. So notice it, name those emotions, and then just normalize it. Normalize it, normalize it, normalize it. Like the the statistic that's often quoted is that 70% of people have felt imposter syndrome, that feeling they're going to be found out or they're a fraud or they're not as good as they think. Normalize, normalize, normalize. And just remember, doubt, nervousness, worry, insecurity are normal and healthy human emotions. And if you don't ever feel those difficult emotions, we're probably having a whole other type of conversation and (laughs) diagnosis. So just remember, normalize, normalize, normalize. These are normal. You said it perfectly. Everybody feels them. And I can give you a secret that I coach everybody at all levels up to the C-suite and they feel all these emotions too. They may not show it in the meeting, but they're there. And the last one is just to reframe it. And so just, I think the perfect, you know, phrase here, and it aligns perfectly with this, the title of this podcast is I often say, this is what it feels like to stretch my comfort zone. Mm. This is what it feels like when I'm meeting my goals. This is what it feels like when I'm excited about a new thing. So everybody has a different reframing statement, but I just want you to notice it, you to name it, normalize it and reframe it, reframe it in a way that feels powerful energizing that feels of peace to you. So you can just kind of disconnect with the, the, the freezing and the procrastinating that comes with that feeling and, and move yourself forward in a way that aligns with your values. I like that. Notice, name, normalize, reframe. Um, I, you quote the same research statistic that I always quote, which is 70% of the population has felt the imposter syndrome. Recent studies are bumping that up to 80 to 85%. And I always say that 15, 20% that hasn't felt imposter syndrome is either lying, never done, stepped out of their conference zone and done anything they haven't, they're not an expert in, or they're so arrogant. None of us want to spend any time with them because you're right. If we don't have some doubt, then you're neither not stretching or you're overconfident. And we have another problem, set of problems. 100%. I love that. Um, and I do agree with you that sometimes with the emotion, naming it is just such a powerful um, device. And if you don't know how to do this, Google an emotional wheel. I know some people have it's a beautiful color print with lots of different emotion names on it. Find the one that you like. There's several of them out there. I know some executives that have that um, framed in their office. So it's a great coaching tool when your team comes in and you say, well, what emotion are you feeling? It's also great for you to say, what am I really feeling here? Once you get that clarity, it's a whole lot easier. And you said something really important here, Kelly, when you're talking about the imposter syndrome, there's a lot of little emotions. I never thought about that way. It's true. Some of them are really positive. 
But we focus on, oh, I shouldn't feel, or oh, I can't, or that's bad. We focus on the negatives and not recognize the excitement, the adrenaline that comes mm-hmm. with a little bit of the imposter syndrome. Very clever. I like that one a lot. Excellent. Okay. Um, and yesterday's goals become today's imposter syndrome. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that one too. <laughs> it's a, I do it's a very inconvenient truth, as Al Gore would say. <laughs> okay. All right, Kelly, I have to ask, because we were talking about confidence and we were talking about imposter syndrome and out of the comfort zone, what takes you out of your comfort zone? Speaking up and using my voice. Absolutely. Um, You know, even though I am direct, I think I just want to go back and land the plane and talk about how the little shame monster comes in. Because remember, as a little person, I spoke up and said whatever I thought. (laughs) (laughs) If it came in the head, it went out of the mouth which would mortify my mother at times, right? Because you've got this little person walking around just saying things she's observed and not always stopping and thinking about the impact of those words. And when you're little, you don't always know what's socially appropriate. So what takes me out of my comfort zone today is I still am fighting that demon. You know, I see things, I want to say things, I want to comment on things maybe that are happening in the broader culture. You know, I'm an advocate for women. I want to help women advance to the rooms where decisions are made. And so sometimes that means taking an unpopular stand. And so stretching my comfort zone still means I'm going in and I'm fighting that little voice that says, don't be too direct. Don't be too direct. Don't be too blunt. And so I stretch my comfort zone when I can really practice speaking up using my voice, risking being criticized or critiqued or argued with and doing so in alignment with my values. Like it is still constantly my number one thing that um, I have to practice. And it really pulls me out of my comfort zone when I can share something or write a newsletter on something or comment on something that really like puts my firm stand in the ground. And there's a risk there that people could disagree there's online trolls these days. I mean, all those sorts of things. And so speaking up is always stretching my comfort zone. I I like, this is so consistent with everything you've said. First off, I think it's wonderful for somebody who makes their living doing public speaking and writing and training workshops to admit that speaking up is not in, is makes you nervous. I know a lot of us have the same kind of parallel. That isn't my issue, but I know a lot of people who do. So, but that doesn't stop you from doing it. And I think that's the big issue is it can't stop you. So you have to have your things that you go back to, your sayings, your core values that you lean on and continue doing. I also want to notice how much that thing that you were taught or told, you're too direct, right back to where we started, how much that still sits kind of as a demon somewhere. It can't be too direct, can't Mm -hmm. be direct, can't Mm -hmm. be direct. Got to be careful about that. Yeah. And do it anyway. And do it anyway. Do it and anyway. still just that little voice that says, gosh, if I could say what I really wanted to say, I would say this and just having to just dial myself back in, but not to the point where I stay silent. So yeah, such, such a good observation. I love it. Thank you very much. Kellyanne Tom- or Kelly Tom. Why do I want to call you Kellyanne? I know too many <laughs> Kelly Thompson. The book is called the closing the confidence gap, boost your peace, your potential and your paycheck. And as you've heard, she's a women's leadership coach and speaker. She works with other people as well. And she is the founder of the Clarity and Confidence Women's Leadership Program. So Kelly, thank you for being a guest today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Wanda. I just adore you. I appreciate you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you here. I think there's several highlights for me that come out of this particular session. 
But one is a reminder again, that if we haven't done the work on our values and understanding what we stand for, what we want our legacy to be about, and all the deep questions that we've already viewed, the five key questions, that is such a springboard for everything else, for the voice in our heads that say we can't, for the fear of taking a risk, for balancing and showing up in a nuanced way that's going to get the best out of everybody else back to that core values. And I think that's also part of what boosts your confidence because you now know what you want to stand for, where you want to say yes and where you want to say no. So thank you again. If you've enjoyed this episode, join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Please like us on your favorite podcast provider. And if you want to know how to apply these concepts and others, check out our subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.